If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 13. We are going to continue our sermon from last week. I got about halfway through and had to stop due to time. I've got about 40 minutes to complete it tonight or today, and I'm going to make sure I do that. So 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. And if you've made your way there, I'm going to ask you to stand, if you will, 13 through 17 here in our passage. Here's what it says. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be, always be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they may speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse you, good, your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your day that you've given us, grateful for this time we could come together to study a portion of your word. Help us, Lord, as we make ourselves a righteous defense, Lord, in you. We're grateful for the opportunity. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Last week we began our study, and uh, one of the things that came about was we discovered that we have a defense but it's a righteous defense. It's not in our own selves, but it is in Christ. And determining that it was in Christ, then we can push forward and discover what these five directives are that kind of give us that uh, ready defense or that righteous defense in Christ. So the title of the message is Our Righteous Defense. <clears throat> in this particular passage of Scripture, we're going to look at five basic things. And I want to give them to you real quick so we have them. First one up... <clears throat> is be passionate for goodness. To be passionate for goodness is, a, is an imperative for Christians. What we've done in, in modern times is we've become very pragmatic. We have done what is, what is good at the moment or right here. But having a passion for goodness is not the same as, as doing good even at that moment. Having a passion for it is a lifestyle. It's how we address everything we're doing. Are we looking for the goodness or looking out for, for goodness in those things around us and being passionate in it? Driving that, that notion that we can be a passionate people for Jesus Christ, for the goodness of it. You see, there's a lot of religions out there that, that teach that we're to do well in all things or to do good, good things here and there. But what drives our goodness is different than what drives other people in their goodness. Their goodness is dependent, uh, well, let me back up and say it like this. Their salvation is dependent on their goodness. There we go. Ours is not that way. Our goodness is determined by our salvation. Now, what does that mean? That means we have been saved and are being saved, and the goodness flows out of that, rather than the other way where we're working toward a goodness. Does that make sense? So we're looking for a passionate goodness. The second thing, it's, it falls right after it, but it's, it's suffering. Being willing to suffer for the right and for the wrong. Now that's something that doesn't come with other religions. They may teach asceticism, but really that's not what we're talking about. 
we're not talking about suffering just to suffer. We're not even talking about suffering so that we can attain salvation. We're talking about a suffering that will come based upon your belief in Jesus Christ. When you are a steadfast disciple of Jesus Christ, sometimes things will happen to you and how you react to it will determine some things. In particular, your willingness to suffer through rather than to fight back. Now, what's the difference between the two? Well, quite simply put, do we push back and do we fight back when uh, we are wronged? Now, not that we're going to be a doormat, but at the same time, we're not itching for the fight. We may have a righteous way to stand, and God may defend us, but it's not something we're looking to defend ourselves. I have been maligned and wronged every, every turn sometimes. And I, and I try to be Christ-like in that I'm not fighting back against that. I'm just letting my righteousness shine. The, the trouble we struggle with in, in our Christen, Christen, Christendom is that there is a, a disconnect between the world system and ours. And, and when we enter into that fray again, pushing back, we become just like the world. And there becomes no difference. They need to be able to see a difference. God says, I am the Lord. I will recompense. It's not yours to do. That's our struggle, right? So first, right, we're, we're passionate for goodness. Second one, we're willing to suffer, if need be, right, for right and for wrong. Okay. Third one is being devoted to Christ, and that's what we're going to pick up today. Being devoted to Christ. Now this starts in about verse, uh, excuse me, uh, Verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Can I tell you that if you will, if you're not passionate for goodness and you're certainly, you're certainly not going to be uh, willing to suffer, you have very little to say here about ready to give an answer. Because if you will stand there and beat someone up or recompense them, again, for evil, for the evil they've done to you, you're not going to have a platform by which you can, uh, you know, give the gospel. It's a difficult thing to blast somebody on one hand and then turn right around and give them the gospel on the other. That's why everything has to work together. That's why Christ in you must come through so that people can hear the gospel when it's preached. This particular passage of Scripture, and specifically, is about being devoted to Christ. It says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Now that's an interesting word, sanctify. Hagazio is, a, is a, a weird word, but it basically means to consecrate. It means to set it apart and consecrate it for a specific purpose. In this case, holiness. But more, more importantly, it's a devotion to Christ. It's a it's a consecration. It's a, I'm, I'm purposely going out and consecrating my heart to Christ. I want my heart to be His heart. I want that kind of relationship with Him. It's that kind of relationship that we struggle with because we're not always right there in the midst. Some have said, you know, what's, the, what's really the big difference between those who do good in the world and those who do good in Christ? And I said, it's Christ. It's the Holy Spirit in you working with the Spirit of God to facilitate the goodness, to facilitate the righteousness. 
that makes all the difference in the world. Because every bit of the good I do involved in this world is for naught. Because it won't add up to anything. If I, if I were to take all my works righteousness from here on the earth and give it to God and say, look what I've done, then it's look what I've done. You see? And God doesn't get the glory for that. But back it up and you say, I'm doing all this in the name of Christ because I, I'm a Christ follower and I do it for Him. Well, then all those works are done in His name. All those works are done for, for His glory and His righteousness. That can be rewarded later. But have we been devoted, consecrated to Christ? Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts? Last week I, I made an illustration. I started this passage and I was like, well, maybe I'll, I'll get it done. But what if you devoted as much time well, let me, just, let me just read it out. How would you feel if God gave you the same amount of time that you give Him? Now, that's an ouch question, right? That's one of those questions you don't want to ask, but when you do, you go, ah, that hurt a little bit. Would I want God to give me the same amount of time that I gave Him? And if the answer to you is no, then you need to change some things. You need to consecrate Christ in your heart. Make Him the Lord of your life. Make Him the, the part that is the, is the big, biggest part of it. So I want to talk to you about giving preeminence. That's the first thing. There's two parts to this. The first one is giving preeminence to Him. And really, are, it's really the primary thing. When you set Christ as the preeminent factor in who you are, everything changes. Let me give you some scripture. This is Acts chapter 20, verse 17. It says, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came unto you into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in the weight of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, and have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to both the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me, save that the Holy Ghost witnessed in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish the course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of, of the grace of God. Paul is telling the, the folks there in Ephesus that he is going back to Jerusalem, but not only that, he has consecrated himself to the work of the ministry and the work of the Lord. Let me ask you something. Have you done just that? In your ministry, and everyone should have one, that's not a preacher thing. Everyone should have some kind of ministry where they minister Jesus to others. Have you consecrated your life to Jesus so that you might minister to those around you in whatever capacity God has called you to minister? You see, my ministry is the preaching ministry. My ministry is the pastoring ministry. That's what mine is. And I've tried to give my life to it. There is a, a way in which we can each individually give our lives to the ministries we've been called to and consecrate ourselves to that work. But not to the work itself, but to Jesus Christ our Lord, and the work flows through it. Listen to this passage from Revelation chapter 4. 
And the four and twenty elders fell down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they were and are were created. They are and were created. Even in the next life, there's such a ministry. But remember that it has to be consecrated in the Lord Jesus. It wasn't, they weren't crying out, worthy are they, they themselves for the works they've done. No, worthy are, is Christ who has done all the work. There's a consecration that happens. These four and twenty elders, they're before the throne and they're, they're laying down their crowns and they're, they're giving it back and they're saying, this is now my ministry. I'm going to call him worthy because he is. See, that's the difference. That's the difference. Verse 15, when it says that to you, right there it says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And then it, then it follows it. It's a conjunctive right there. And, listen to it, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you the, a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now there's a couple of things all packed up in this. This is point number four. For those of you taking notes, be ready to defend the faith. Andrew, turn down my gain a little bit, son. Thank you, sir. Be ready always to defend the faith. This is a big one. Apologetics is huge. If you don't know what the word apologetics is, I suggest you come on a Wednesday night and learn because we, we've, we've taught apologetics and we'll be happy to teach you some more. Right now we're teaching through the nine marks and who we are as a church. And we're about to come up on evangelism and evangelism is, is tied to, but not directly, to apologetics. See, evangelism is telling others about Jesus, hoping they'll come to Christ. But the, the notion is, is in apologetics, you're also defending the faith in conjunction with evangelizing. So apologetics is the notion that we can defend the faith. Now, how do you defend something? Well, you have to know it. If you were defending a fort, and I'm going back to my Cowboys and Indians days, but if you were defending a fort, you would have to know the layout of the fort. You'd have to know what weapons were available in the fort. You'd have to be able to use those weapons. You'd have to have some kind of knowledge. My suggestion is for you, and, the, and in here from, from uh, the Apostle Peter, is to have that knowledge. The difference is we're going to express it with meekness and fear. And we'll, I'll tell you about that in just a minute. But let's talk about the knowledge first. How in the world do you defend the faith? You say, well, uh, we, we, we just need to be like Spurgeon and, 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 and say, well, the Word of God doesn't need a defense. It just needs to be let loose. Well, you need to know how to handle it. You need to know how to let it loose. Because here's what we do. We sometimes will blast people thinking that's a defense of the faith, and it's not. Because the second part of that is with meekness and fear. Meekness is not weakness. You need to not, not associate the two. Meekness means it's, it's power under control. It's a focus. It's just like if I, if I put scattershot in a shotgun and blow it out the end, I might accidentally hit something. But if I use a, uh, if I use a slug and aim correctly, I'll knock a hole in something every time. Now the notion is, is that this, this idea of giving the, the defense is that we're, we have that knowledge innate in us because of who we are in Jesus Christ, and we're giving that knowledge back. It's, a, it's, what, it's who you know inside. 
Let me, let me give it to you like this. If we're ready to, to defend the faith and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh, how do we do it? Now, I want to give you a quote by Charles Spurgeon here. We must defend the faith. For what would have become of us if our fathers had not maintained it? If confessors, reformers, martyrs, and covetors had been indifferent to the name and faith of Jesus, where would we have been in the, in the churches of today? Must we not play the man as they did? And then later on in, in, a, in a series of articles he wrote, he wrote about this, there were some critics of him saying that he should not have um, you know, gone back and, and said these things. It says, when the targets of Spurgeon's critics complained that it was discourteous of him to denounce anything and that he should stick to preaching positive things. that sound familiar, by the way? Spurgeon responded this way, A little plain speaking would do a world of good just now. These gentlemen desire to be let alone. They want no noise raised. Of course, thieves hate watchdogs and love darkness. Now, why did he say all that? He said that because they were, they were interfering in the, the course that God has laid out for Spurgeon. In this case, Spurgeon was, was one of those men who was uniquely positioned in time and uniquely positioned in the community, specifically to go back and, and push back against those things of the darkness around him. And he was being criticized by his critics for it. So he pushed back and he said, but here's the thing. Those kinds of people don't want, don't want the truth exposed. They don't want it out there. Jesus desires us to be ready to give an answer. My comment here is, are you ready to give an answer anytime someone asks you? I got the opportunity yesterday to talk to my barber again. I, bless his heart, I, I'm, I'm, I have a feeling one of these days he's going to tell me not to come in. Um, because I, I keep giving him the gospel. And, and he just nods and smiles at me a lot, and that's what he does. One of these days, I'm just going to keep giving it. And if he quits asking, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll still try to give it to him. But every time he asks, I want him to be able to ask those kinds of questions. I want him to be able to talk to me. Those people around you who you come in contact with, you need to have a conversation with them and be ready always to give an answer. Okay? So let me give you some scripture. First, the answer must be clear and unwavering. You can't be wishy-washy about it. You can't. you got to be ready. See, the difference is you can give an answer, but it may not be a good answer. It could be a wrong answer. Your answer must be clear and unwavering. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled uh, from evil, uh, with, from an evil con- sprinkle, have our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but the exhorting one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. So here's the writer of Hebrews. This is Paul, by the way, we believe, writing in the book of Hebrews explained to us that we need to not only be ready, but unwavering. In addition to unwavering, we need to be helping each other. If someone else has a problem speaking to other people, bring in some more help. Bring in backup. My wife and I like to watch TV, uh, uh, the TV cop shows and things. And we're always amazed on those shows when it's, it's the lone detective going into the building. He knows protocol. He's supposed to call for backup, but he doesn't. 
and inevitably he gets in trouble and gets you know either kidnapped or put at gunpoint. So how do you avoid that, spiritually speaking, when you're talking to other people? Bring back up. If you can't articulate it, call somebody who can. If, if you're alone with somebody and you, and you say, you know, I don't know the answer to that, let me go and get some answers for that and come back to you. Go get back up. But be unwavering in it. Do it. Don't just say you're going to. Uh, I was listening to a preacher over the weekend, and uh, as I was listening to him, one of the, he came across a passage of Scripture that I know too well out of Hebrews chapter 5. And uh, he, he said, you know, he said, our biggest problem is, is we say we're going to pray for you, but we don't stop right there and pray. We, we, we tell them we're going to pray for them, and maybe we pray for them later. But how much more impact do we have on that person if we stop right then and say, let me just pray for you? Because sometimes it just makes that much difference. Just pray for them right there. In conjunction with that, Always be ready with an answer. You see, you have an answer whether you know it or not. If you've been born again, you've got your testimony. Your testimony is an answer. You can always swing it back so that you can talk about your testimony. Well, you know, if some, what if somebody asked me about evolution or asked me about the creation experience? You know, what, what happened in the creation? You know, God was busy creating the whole world and everything in it, and man included. Let me tell you what he did with me. I'm a new creature in Christ. Here's what happened to me. You see, it just turns it right back around so that you have that answer. You always need to have an answer, though. Here's the thing. Scripture is there for us. It's not hidden. Before the writing of the New Testament, what a struggle they must have had. All they had was the Old Testament, and then they had the, new, the testimony of Jesus Christ that they had. That's what they had. And the gospel spread. And Paul comes along behind them and starts writing... Uh, writing the New Testament. Peter comes along behind him, starts writing the New Testament. And now we have Scripture to go back to and say, Thus saith the Lord. What an opportunity. I, I love history. And if you, if you go back to when the printing press was invented and the Gutenberg Bible and all these things that were created, right after that, what an expansive thing. To have a Bible that you can hold. They used to, in the Dark Ages, chain the one lone Bible they had, the, the Catholic Bible, they would chain it to a, a pulpit and wouldn't let you have it. Then, they would, then when they figured out that people were sneaking in and reading it, they took it and translated it into Latin. It was a priest language that nobody really around them understood so that you couldn't read it again. Because we didn't want it in a common tongue where the common people could get it. And then all of a sudden, these guys came out and they said, you know what, we need a Bible in English that we can read. We need a Bible in German that we can read. We need a Bible in Italian that we can read. We need a Bible in this language. And now there are thousands and thousands of Bibles out there that are written specifically in languages so everybody can get a hold of the Word of God. We've got no reason not to have the Word of God in our minds and in our hands constantly. I've got it in my pocket on my phone. I've got, it, I've got a Bible in my glove box. I've got a Bible everywhere, my briefcase everywhere, so that I can have the Word of God and take it to anybody who asks me uh, the answer within me, right? He, they, we want to know. We want to be able to give it away. So we got no excuse. Let me give you some scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed. Can I just tell you something about that verse? I love that verse. I'm not ashamed. It's easy to fall into the trap of criticism. It's easy to fall into the trap where people make you feel ashamed. 
Here's what I've discovered since I've gotten a little older, more gray. We don't like to talk about the gray, but it's coming for me quickly. I've discovered something. I am not ashamed. I care very little about how people perceive my Christianity to the point that I, would, I, I want them to see it. I don't care if they see it. I want it to be the best side of Christianity I can give them. I want to be living the most holy life I can in order that they might see it. That's why my wife is constantly praying for me about my driving here in Northwest Arkansas because she's worried about my testimony. And rightly so. I need to be a little more worried about my testimony when it comes to that. But I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all day, every day, I'll tell anybody who asks me about Jesus. Paul, writing here to Timothy, says, Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That right there, that verse ought to be a good life verse for you. Grab a hold of it like the Apostle Paul and say, I'm not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able. If you can get to that point where you believe that, nothing, anything the world's got to say will, will assuage you. In our modern culture today, there are more, more and more people believing in aliens and, and things like that. They're out there, right? And, and they're trying to explain things away by, by alien this and alien that all the time. And they, they say, well, what about all this evidence about this and that? I said, well, what about the evidence of Jesus Christ? Because it's always about Jesus. What I've discovered and what's happened in my life is that people have come at me with argument after argument after argument, and I have to just say what I believe. I know what the Scriptures teach, and I believe them. Once you get there... No man's going to dissuade you from your beliefs. That's why we, we, we teach our children. That's why we, we push so hard for people to come to Sunday school so that they can be undergirded with that. You know what the importance of, of teachings outside of just hearing it right here? Look, I, I, I love everybody to hear my preaching, but I'm going to tell you that it, you need more than just this. You need a personal time with God. You need study time with other believers. So my suggestion is, get you a Bible study together and go for it. Find something to teach you and help you. Come to Sunday school and hear Tommy. He's, got, uh, he's teaching discipleship right now, learning how to, how to live the Christian life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. A shameless plug for Sunday school? Absolutely. But even more than that, it's, it's our duty to handle the Word of God correctly. It's our duty to come in and have, a, have an answer to the reason of the hope within you. If you can't do that, you need to have somebody help you get, get that going. Let me finish this passage of Scripture we just started. He tells you he's, he's, he's committed unto him against that day. Verse 13 says, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love and which is in Christ Jesus, that the good thing which was committed unto thee keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelt in us. You see, God's in the, in, the, in the purview of furthering His self-interest. God wants His gospel promulgated. So what He will do in you is the Holy Ghost that's in you will help you in that moment when you need some help, He will come beside you. He is the helper. And those things which you've studied and put back, He'll bring them to the forefront again to help you.
That's, that's the responsibility of the Holy Ghost. He is in conjunction, working in conjunction with God's Spirit. And the Spirit will work together so that you might have backup. Right? All right. Jude chapter 1. I always say that. I love saying that. That's great. Jude. It's just Jude. It's not chapter or anything. Jude, verse 3, says this. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, I love this passage because what happens here is Jude wants to write about the salvation that's common to all of us. He wants to talk about that. But he, he can't. The Spirit forbades him, and he has to write now about earnestly contending for the faith because it seems that in his, his day and age that there was, there was no fight left in the Christians about the faith. Do you know when this was written? About 70-something A.D., eh, just a few years after Christ. Maybe at the latest 90. But still, you're talking about just a few years. How do we, how do we get from a place where we're, we want to talk about salvation, but now we have to earnestly contend for the faith in just a few short years? Guess what? It's still happening today. That's why Jude is so relevant to us. Check out the rest of this passage here in verse 4. <clears throat> For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before or of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does he say all that? Well, because there's a need, a desperate need, to push back against heresy that's coming out. In our day and age, there's a lot of people talking a lot of things. There's everything in the, under the sun in, about Scripture. You get every, every couple of weeks or so, you'll see somebody new who said something they think is brand new revelation about something in Scripture. Here's what i got to tell you. If, you. if you twist Scripture to make it say something other than what it was intended, you're a heretic. And I can't make it any more plain for you. If you take a piece of scripture and twist it to make it say what you want it to, you're a heretic. And there's plenty of more, plenty of, uh, well, I about gave it away, didn't I? There's plenty of other people out there, like Beth Moore in particular, who's doing that currently. You say you're coming out against Beth Moore? Absolutely I am. I've read what she's got to say. She's wrong. And I dare say she's close to being heretical, if not already her a heretic. There's others out there, too. I, I got a list. You ever want to come by and talk about a list of those? Come by and see me. I've got one going in my office. Okay? But in particular, she's been in the news lately, and so I want to, I want to put that out there. Jude reminds us that we are to earnestly contend for the faith. And Peter, right beside him, says, You've, we've got to be ready with an answer to every man. Please understand, there will be people who will call me a heretic, too. So I want to make sure that I'm perfectly clear here. I want to follow the scriptures and their intent and context. That's what I want to do. I'm not interested in what uh, any kind of superficial revelation. I'm interested in what God has revealed to us in, our, in His Word for our benefit. And He's told us to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Why should we earnestly contend for it? Because there are people out there earnestly subverting it. And if there's an earnest subversion, then the true church must step up and step in and say, no, we're going to earnestly contend. That's where we find ourselves this morning. Okay? All right, next point. This is number five. 
we're, well, I timed that good. We've got 10 minutes. Don't look at the clock. We're okay. <clears throat> the fifth one, the fifth of these things that we, we have to develop as a, uh, uh, as a good defense is, oh, this one, is have a good conscience. Now, when I say have a good conscience, that doesn't mean that it can, it can just be any kind of conscience. It has to be a good one. And when I, mean, when I say good one, a righteous one. A good, a good conscience implies two things. First, that the conscience be properly enlightened. And these are progressive, by the way. Uh, so one begets the next one. You have to be properly enlightened. That means that God has had to save your soul and enlighten the eyes of your understanding. God has had to do that. Once God does that, then the conscience becomes proper. Because you can have a conscience that's improperly done as well, right? You can have one that motivates after bad things, that goes after wrong kinds of things. That it be properly enlightened is to know what is right and what is wrong, and that it's not under the dominion of ignorance, superstition, fanaticism, prompting us to do what we would be, what would be in violation of the divine law. You see, our notion is, is that we have the right kinds of conscience. We want to have a God conscience. Doing the things that God would ask us to do in context with His Word. You see, that's why your conscience gets hurt when you do things that are wrong. When you do things anti-God or anti-Bible, you've suddenly violated that, and it, and it, it becomes a, a stinging point, it becomes a red light on the dashboard, right? I, I love that analogy because I'm a car guy. I, it, I've got this, this stupid warning light that keeps coming on. I know what it is. I just can't get it fixed right now. But I know what it is. And it's a warning to me that, in my case, it's a warning that I'm not getting enough airflow, right, in the right way. And I'll explain that to you if you ever want to know. But for us, uh, when, we, when we push back against the conscience and the conscience goes, oh, oh, that hurt. Or I shouldn't have done that thing because now I feel icky, right? That's your conscience telling you that's not a good conscience spot. It's a bad one. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11 says, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness that's from second peter chapter 3 verse 11 through 13 now why read that because there is a part right there what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness you see there's a a predisposition for those in jesus christ when you have been born again by the spirit of god there is a change that happens and the change then is that conscience that tells you it's the Holy Spirit that tells you, no, don't do the same things you did before. You have the option not to do them. And then when you do do them, there's a warning that says, eh, 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 don't do it. And then when you violated it and went ahead and done it anyway, you have that feeling inside of you that you've done something you shouldn't have and you need to repent. See, it's all there so that you can have that so that there's a, a place to have a good conscience. The word, uh, the word right there that we're looking for, conscience. Pseudon, pseudodesis. 
it's a tough word for us. It's a moral consciousness. It's the struggle that happens at the moment when sin enters in. Can you have a good conscience? Well, you see, in order for us to have a good, a righteous defense, you have to have a good conscience. You can't have a righteous defense and a bad conscience. Can't happen. If your moral consciousness says, I'm in trouble with the Lord, you can't be, have a good righteous defense, right? It can't happen. Now, the second thing is the, is the progressive part. That then dictates it must always be obeyed. If God has given you a new conscience, if he's given you a good conscience, then you must obey it. That's the harder part of that, right? That's the part we don't like. That's the part that says, pull up to the, the traffic light, but nobody's at the other intersection, and we just want to go with the lights red. And you think about it, and you think about it, and, and, and do you go or do you not? Now, in the corner of your mind, you're thinking, well, if there's a police officer, I won't go. If there's not a police officer, there's no cameras. I can go, but nobody will know about it. But will your conscience know about it? Absolutely. And the next time you come up to that light, you'll go, ah, maybe I should just wait. That's how we operate. We must do what it dictates. If the conscience that is holy and righteous dictates this, then we do that. What happens when we violate that? Well, you violated your own conscience. And then what happens with that? Well, then it becomes sin. The problem is, is if you don't get the first one right, if you don't get a, a new conscience from God, a holy conscience from God, when you do the second, it'll be just as bad. That's the hard part. Without the first of these clear views of, of that which is right and wrong, conscience becomes an unsafe guide, for it merely prompts us to do what we esteem to be right. And if our views of what is right and wrong are erroneous, we may be prompted to do what may be a direct violation of the law of God. Paul thought that he ought to do many things. Remember? Paul says, I ought to do this and I ought to do that. But what did he want to do? He wanted to do only that which God had directed my wife and I were discussing this very point the other day. I don't know where we were. We were sitting somewhere, and, and it, it, it's just that. If, if, if we violate the conscience, we struggle so much in, in that, that one spot that when we actually do violate it, then we have to go back and question, were we actually correct at the beginning of that? But here's the, here's the good news for you. If you know that you've truly been born again and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you and you're seeking out the things of God in your life, then the next move when your conscience prompts you is the right move. Everybody always talks about, I want to do the will of God. How about you find yourself first obeying God and His righteousness and then letting God through your conscious, consciousness and your, the Holy Spirit within you direct that. That's how you move forward. You say, well, does God want me to do this? Well, let me ask you something. Does it violate any of the Word of God? And not only that, is it something that your conscience tells you, yes, you can do that? Because the Holy Spirit's going to direct you. If you've been born again, it's going to give you direction. He, or He's going to give you direction, excuse me. 
there is a direction which, which we, can, we can grab a hold of, but our conscience got to, has got to be clear. You've got to have a good one. All right? Let me give you some scripture to help you here. We'll finish up. 1 Peter chapter 2, back in our passage in 1 Peter, in chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, you may both by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. See, that's exciting to me because that tells me I've got hope. My, my, I mean, it gives me help because I'm one of those guys that needs a little bit of direction. Abstain from fleshly lust, not complicated. Man, that's the easiest way to, to read that all day long. Abstain from fleshly lust means don't do it. Uh, I've got to solve for all the, uh, all the abortion issue. I've got to solve for it. Abstain. Abstain from fleshly lust in particular. It's the absolute answer to the abortion problem. Uh, everyone wants to can, uh, say, well, uh, we need abortion because we're, there's a lot of, you know, sex going on. But hold on there for a second. If you don't do the first, you don't get the second. Abortion drops dramatically when there's no fornication going on. In fact, I'll tell you, it just drops to zero. Then you don't have to worry about killing babies and have that on your conscience. See, it's, it, you say, oh, you can't legislate morality. You're right, I can't, I can't make people stop fornicating. We can pass laws that, that say, you know, we're not going to have abortion. Is that going to keep them from fornicating? No, they're still going to do it. How do you do that? You change their conscience. You change their heart. How do you do that? You let, the God, you let God do it, and how does he do it? He uses you who have an answer ready for anyone who asks. And when their heart's changed, their activity changes. And when their activity changes, society changes. Christianity is the best thing ever hit society in the world, and they're trying to stamp it out every chance they get. Cracks me up. They won't do it, by the way. They may get, they may get inroads. Everybody says, oh, the church is in decline. Can I just tell you it's not? You want me to tell you what it is in? It's in refinement. What's happening is in the church is people who said they were part of, uh, said they were part of the body are not, and they're going away because it's become too hard. It's become difficult. And when it becomes difficult, people walk away from it. What happens is the pure gold stays, and it's refined. It's refined by the fire around us. So, one more piece of scripture and I'll let you go. This is Philippians 1.27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. You want to have a good conscience? Here it is. Here's a great verse for you. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You see, our behavior is that of a good conscience. The behavior you have is a direct reflection of your conscience, bad or good. So where do you stand? My hope is that you find that good conscience. But let's go back and talk about it real quick. Let's talk about the five. Okay? First up. Let me find it. Be passionate for goodness. That's an easy one. Be passionate for goodness. The second one then comes in. Be willing to suffer. For right or for wrong. Right? 
Third one is, be devoted to Christ. Fourth one, that's just right behind it, I'd be ready to defend the faith. And the fifth one, have a good conscience. That's all I got today. Let's stand.